0: Ari Rosebaum here with another fun-filled episode of that 401k podcast. This week's topic, we're going to talk about what I call the KISS theory and options for a 401k plan. Some of the ideas that I have when it comes to drafting plan documents and how you have to keep it really, really simple. Um, but of course, first things first, go to that4ksite.com for further information on all live events. Oakland, April 14th. We got Ron Darling as our guest. Um... Should be a lot of fun. Game tickets against the Mets. May the 3rd, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, that should be a lot of fun as well. Uh, and, of course, we're still looking at June uh, for a New York uh, event and eventually, uh, um, you know, booking for September. Uh, but, of course, go to that4ksite.com for further information on all our uh, events. And, uh, If you go to YouTube, check out uh, that 401k National Virtual Conference. Both days are up for you to watch on YouTube, whatever you've missed, uh, the Thursday and Friday sessions. Friday, we had a great roundtable. Thursday, a lot of great presentations. I talk about Secure 2.0 and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the KISS theory and options for a 401k plan. And the theory of KISS is, again, Kiss is one of my favorite rock bands of all time. I'm a big Aerosmith fan and uh, Eagles, Guns N' Roses and all that kind of stuff. And I think Kiss is really at the top of my list. I I saw them, uh, never saw them without makeup. Uh, So only saw them with makeup. I saw them a couple times, uh, the Alive tour, Psycho Circus. And I did see them when they uh, did a tour with Aerosmith and they actually opened up for Aerosmith. But, uh, We're not talking about Kiss and, you know, my favorite Kiss songs and all that, which of course, my favorite Kiss song is Deuce. Um, I think it's one of the best uh, openers. But when it comes to retirement plans, Kiss really means, as I call it, keep it simple, stupid. Um, And I'm not trying to say that anybody's stupid. I'm just saying that you, in order to facilitate administration, um, you need to have options that aren't the stick in the wheels of. You know, proper plan administration. Uh outside the box options, in my opinion, only create administrative errors. Years ago I remember when I was at um, at Giller or whatever, um, a conversion specialist handed me a plan amendment that another risk attorney based in California had, you know had created for a matching contribution and I read it and it was so complicated. And I said you Know, I understand what he's trying to do, but good luck administering it. And I spent you know almost 10 years working as a TPA attorney. Um, that you know, I, I just know what when, when options become problems. Um, and we we talked uh, a few weeks back about options that you know, plan sponsors could pass on, but this is more of my theory of you know, why, why don't we have this? Uh, what th- this is what we. What we should have, and this is what we shouldn't have, in terms of uh, plan options. And right off the bat, um, Roth contributions. I I don't understand why, in this day and age, plan sponsors wouldn't allow plan participants to have it. There are still plans out there that you know that don't have that option. Uh, My joke is for the um, for the five people that can afford it. uh, It's a great benefit. Uh, I think you should give people the opportunity to defer on it. Uh, after-tax basis and have tax-free growth and take that money out. And whether we like it or not, it's become more and more popular in terms of plans, adding it. Uh, It's a great feature for HCs that, um, you know, might've been phased out because of the Roth IRA, the income limits and all that stuff. Um, Starting in, you know, the the problem with catch-ups is, you know, my opinion, secure 2.0, Uh, Anybody making over $145,000, the catch-up is going to have to be done on a Roth basis. Um, And, you know, uh, somebody like my wife's not going to be too happy about it. Because when you live in a high-tax state, um, that's going to be a problem. And as far as uh, the Secure 2.0 and and the Roth after-tax option for... um, matching and and profit-sharing contributions, I don't think that they'll be popular. I had a debate with an advisor yesterday. He insisted that uh, it's only allowed for those who've met 100% vesting on their schedule, and I said that it's just really the requirement is the people have to be 100% vested uh, for participants to be allowed to have that opportunity. And if you just said that uh, only those who are fully vested get it, in terms of you know meeting the schedule and not offering an accelerated uh, provision for them could be a benefits, rights, and future problem. So that's why I believe that what the law is, if you offer it, you have to vest them irrespective of your vesting schedule. I don't think that they will be popular. That's just my hunch uh, for any employer that has a vesting schedule. For those that don't, they don't really care. You know, when I was at that... that um, Forsaken Law Firm on Long Island, you know, we were fully vested in the 5% contribution. Um, they wouldn't care um, whether they would offer the Roth feature. It's just a function of payroll and, and whatnot. So I don't think it'd be a problem. Uh, in an eligibility, uh, if I lived in an ideal world, I would say you should not have eligibility for deferrals. That's just my feeling uh, I was an employee once too, which is why I've been in, uh, working on my own for the last 13 years, and it was always a sticking point for me if I had to go through an eligibility period um, for a 401k, uh, w- when I could afford a 401k. And uh, it, it's just, you know, it, it, uh, certain law firms, whatever, yeah, I, I want to say it, uh, myers Swazi There was no eligibility period for the plan. I I think the Cone Weiss, whatever, the 10 months that I was there, I think there was a one year wait. Um, I just like that opportunity uh, that, you know, give the option for people to defer. Um, Again, um, the fact that you can test as if the plan had a 21-in-1 schedule, um, 21-in-1 eligibility, the otherwise excludable rule, it just, it's just a no-brainer for me for plan sponsors to offer that zero eligibility for deferrals. Uh, but again, we don't live in an ideal world. Um, there's a large, you know, there are businesses out there. that's a large turnover. Um, you know, a lot of former participants, small account balances, that becomes a headache. I understand that. But I really believe that the way... Um, retirement plan law is going. Uh, you know, we're going to have to include the long-time part-time employees. That eventually, one day, you will see zero eligibility requirements for deferrals. That would be mandated. That's how I see it. Uh, I think that that's going to be the future. Could be wrong, but again, I, I just I like it. And I, but I understand why some businesses don't want to have it. But I always say that if you have a large amount of turnover. Maybe the problem isn't the eligibility for deferrals. Maybe it's the problem with the business that you're running that you have such a turnover. Again, I work at a TPA shop where I would joke that uh, they should you know, ins- have installed the revolving door as the front door. But that's just me. Entry date. Again, um, I've talked about it a lot. Dual entry is okay except for the fact that you might have people wait five months to get in. I like monthly. Quarterly is pretty good. Uh, but the uh, the idea that you had immediate entry uh, is the silliest thing I've ever heard. Uh, it should not be allowed. Well, I mean, people have that choice. I'm just saying that it's a it's an opportunity for disaster. Having a participant become eligible on any day of the year is harder to track. I'm all for tracking eligibility entry. Um, if you have 12 dates because you have monthly, it's a lot easier to manage than 365 and there's nothing worse than people, um, not entering the plan when they were supposed to and having missed a Furl opportunity and all that kind of stuff. I don't need it. I don't, I don't want it. It's a headache. I certainly don't need. And I think it's important that, uh, it not be, um, out there. Just because it, you know, in my mind, it just creates headaches and mistakes and whatnot. And, you know, if the missed referral opportunity is long enough, the plan sponsors got to fork over a qualified non-elective contribution. And, again, I, I, I why? <laughs> You're just setting yourself up for a disaster, in my opinion. Uh, normal retirement age, six around, six around 86, I want to say. It's been 65 as the... Uh, Uh, Maximum age. There are people who um, use the 65th or fifth anniversary of joining the plan to push it back for people that get hired later. Um, uh, I I, I, I think I keep it simple. 65 is good for me. Uh, There are other plans that have um, lower ages. But it reminds me there was a change in the law where the IRS said anything under sixty-two would be a problem unless you could prove that, um, unless you could prove that the industry allowed for you know an earlier normal retirement age. And, and why was that? That was because of abuses in the defined benefit plan space, where you would have a, a plan set up. Uh, it really was a tax avoidance scheme in the sense that, uh, they would have a normal retirement age of age 35 years ago. Um, when I was working for TPA, we had, it was a, it was a kosher food company out in the city, New York city. And, uh, the normal retirement age was age 35. They were using an aggressive actuary, uh, right near where I live, uh, You know, an aggressive place that uh, really had defined benefit plans, but they were mostly in the insurance selling business. And so, you know, getting a a plan out there with an NRA of 35 and the people are 40, you just have to front load a lot of contributions to get that uh, defined benefit at age 35. Um, And the IRS obviously put a stop to it. And we actually didn't take over the defined benefit plan based on my suggestion. And that's before the change from the 62, um, because I I said at the time, I said, unless they're, you know, Major League Baseball Players Association or, you know, in the sports world, age 35 is not appropriate as a normal retirement age. So maybe I was ahead of the curve and the law changed. Well, I mean, the guidance from the IRS changed uh, a couple of years later. um, And it became a problem for a lot of these businesses where they had an earlier than 62. But, you know, in some industries... Uh, you know, you could have a 55, uh, a police officer, you know, certain industries and businesses where people do retire at that kind of age, they do their 20 years and they leave, uh, that, that's, that's reasonable. Early retirement age, um, I, I, I see no use for it. Uh, it's that whole age 55 and 5, uh, it's kind of a defined benefit kind of option. Defined benefit plans have that because they allow people to have an early retirement, get a reduced pension. I see no use of it in a 401k plan um, other than to allow people to actually retire and avoid the 10% uh, excise tax. I, I just I, I, I don't see the use for it, in my opinion. Distributions, lump sum, cash only. Don't like installments. Don't, certainly don't like Don't like annuities. Uh, I don't like in-kind distributions. We just had that recently with a client that uh, they wanted to offer some people an in-kind distribution and not others. And to me, it's just a giant headache. Um, You're not in the position of being a custodian of assets and moving over particular assets to somebody's IRA. Keep it simple. Stupid. Pay them out. Adios. Goodbye. Here's your lump sum. Uh, Nice knowing you. Keep in touch. Send a postcard from Costa Rica, wherever you're going to go, and, and leave us alone. In service distributions, I love it. Age 59 and a half, there's no longer that penalty for early distribution. Um, allow people to roll it over, allow people to take it. So, age 59 and a half, no retirement age, if they want to take their money, good luck. It's fine by me. Hardship distributions. Now, that's something that, uh, you know, people might have a problem with it. But um, I think people know my greatest person I ever knew was my grandmother. And my grandmother uh, was a survivor of the Holocaust and uh, just a a sweet, sweet woman. And I I take a lot of, you know, the the way I treat people. Basically, she was the... uh, person that I I based how I act with people and and deal with people and uh, like I said she was probably the guiding light and I think one of her most important sayings was you know life never goes to plan you you can plan I think other people say you know uh, you plan and God laughs but her point was you know Life throws you a curve, and you have to deal with it. And I say that with hardship distributions. It's you know, an ideal world, people don't need it. But you know what? Life gets in the way. Um, You know, again, I sit here where there are five five feet of water. Um, Something you know, I needed money to fix the house. (laughs) Um, I I took a hardship distribution. It, It is what it is. Uh, And, you you know, I don't think it's fair to say to somebody, you know what, this is your money. You can't, you know, you can't deal with it with what you can. And obviously, um, you know, the IRS, not the IRS, but Congress sees it the same way because they're doing the emergency savings uh, accounts and doing some tax-free thousand dollar distributions and all that kind of stuff. So they understand the need for hardship distributions, because, again, it's participants' money. If they need to access it, they should. Um, you know, and, and when it comes time to it, again, uh, Congress uh, allows now participants to vouch for their distribution so you don't have to go through the whole process of seeing whether they really need it or they're just trying to scam you. Uh, again, life doesn't go to plan. Um offer it offer minimum distributions of a thousand bucks you're not a a payday loan company um that's how i see it for plan sponsors next loans loans are obviously a means for participants to access their account balance when they need it loan is their own direct investment and they pay it back with interest um again i think like hardship life doesn't go to plan sometimes people need that you know people take out a loan to buy a house maybe it's cheaper interest um you know, especially if it's prime plus one and their mortgage loan is prime plus two or three or whatever it is. Um, I'm all for it. However, as you all probably know, um, there should be a $1,000 minimum loan requirement and a maximum loan of one loan outstanding. Plans that have, you know, eight to nine outstanding loans per participant. Um, Keep it simple, stupid, because the more loans uh, a plan allows their participants and participants take out, the more there's a chance that the TPA and or the plan sponsor will goof, not make the mandatory quarterly payments or whatever it is per the promissory note, and the loan ends up in a default. And it's just, you know, if it's the fault of the plan sponsor and or the TPA, yeah, it can be fixed. But I hate fixing errors. I hate mistakes, um, and I just noticed uh, one here where I, I forgot to uh, bold a, a paragraph. But yeah, um, again, it's people's money. It give them the opportunity to take it out and be done with it. And um, that's really it for that episode of that 4 k podcast, the short topic this week. But uh, go to that 401 site.com Uh, for further information on all our live events, Oakland, Detroit, and hopefully New York in June. So take care.